Audio Cartridge Audio. My name's Trevor Strunk, Hagelbon on Twitter, and I'm here with a repeat guest uh, now, and, and and I'm happy to have him back, uh, Mr. Mr. Alex Deacon. Hello, how are you? How you doing? Did I forget, did we decide, did I decide, uh, decide is the wrong word, did you tell me that it is Deegan or Dagan? Yeah, that's right. It's, it's Deegan. Okay, I'm glad I remembered correctly. Because um, it's not, it's not pronounced as it's written, which always leads to people calling me Dagan, which is probably, you know, before Ellis Island was the correct way to say it. But It sounds like some, like, uh, antagonist from The Walking Dead or something. <laughs> God. Did you did you watch The Walking Dead? No, you know I actually I actually only encountered The Walking Dead via comics. I read the first volume, probably when it came out, the comic by Robert Kirkman, and like I heard the first few comics are good, but it was yeah they're great. It was so weird because I saw the first episode of Walking Dead, which is you know is what I usually like in like zombie or apocalypse movies, whatever. Yeah, going to shit, and you're like yeah, and then it was like on the next episode and it was just straight up people being like did you fuck my wife and i was like oh okay yeah <laughs> this isn't this is this is kind of like yeah this is kind of trashy it's just gonna, yeah it's just gonna be a soap opera of like like everything becomes but i was just like all right and then i was telling my friend josh that because he was watching and he was like no yeah it's immediately that and that's all it is and then every season there's a big climax where sort of like where they are precariously gets taken over or they take over somewhere else, but then it immediately just goes back into like melodrama and you're like, all right, <laughs> that's awful. So. Yeah. I, I think like, as I recall the cool thing, I mean, Kirkman is a weird figure in and of himself, but like when he first started like getting into mainstream comics and like he was writing uh, invincible and then the walking dead, like invincible was cool because it was a superhero comic that was like, instantly a bunch of action and some intrigue and it, it, there was like you know surprises and stuff but like primarily it was a superhero comic and it knew what it was and it was like very clear on that and then the walking dead was good because it was a horror comic and it was like yeah we're gonna just like give you some horror comic stuff like this is a zombie comic we're just we're just gonna do that and like that just kind of worked and I, I it's a little depressing to hear that the show just goes immediately to melodrama because I'm sure that's where the comic went, but I don't think it's where it started as I recall. Well, also the sheer amount of, of, of comics in the series that exist is pretty shocking. Like I went into Tim Hanley's comic universe in uh, New York Mm -hmm. years ago and they literally had a wall. And I mean like floor to ceiling full wall in a really large place that was all walking dead. And I was like, wow. Oh, I guess it's, it's its own industry now, you know? (laughs) Yep. So, yeah, it's 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 weird. Like, I don't I don't really understand. I guess I just don't understand why that happens. Like, I uh, or I know why it happens, but I just I don't understand like what the feeling must be like when it does happen for like the creators. Because I remember like finding out recently that there was a uh, there was a TV show of that old um, Brian Michael Bendis indie comic um, indie ish comic. It's more mainstream than a lot of indies, but uh, Powers. If you remember that? Yeah, yeah, I've never it, never seen it. Yeah. But yeah, no, I didn't know they made a TV show until ages ago, but like or until recently, but it was ages ago that they made it. And it was just like a flop because of course it was a flop. I don't even understand how you how you would do that. And like but Powers is cool that way where like I don't know, like Bendis is is very hit or miss, but like 
that was a cool comic series because like it felt like only it could it could only exist in a comic like it did the right thing that way and like i don't i don't know man like well that's that's the thing right now about i i'm going to be talking outside of school cuz this isn't my purview but i know <laughs> who have worked for things and made comics artists who are hired by comics companies or whatever Mm-hmm. Mine, who's a colorist, colored a comic series that then literally didn't come out, and they were like, "Why would they hire us to work on this comic?" That weird. And the reason was because it was to be part of a portfolio to show to a studio about making a TV show. Oh, so weird. The the reason I, I I went on that is because like you said, like things that are made to be comics. It's weird that I think in all types of modern comic stuff, but also like children's books and stuff like that. There are people who are making things that it's literally just an entree or a stepping stone into a TV show. So, right. Yeah. It's always, that's always the next thought. Like I, I know my, um, I mean, it would make sense if it was a popular thing and then that happens naturally, but for it to be designed by that from its inception means that you're going to have, it's almost like, like having a phantom landlord or something. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. Yeah. The fact that I knew people who are like, I literally saw someone I know say to someone else, like, is that comic in stores? Where do I get that? The thing <laughs> made. And it's like, God, that's weird. Later, I was like, well, what happened with it? And they're like, I think they just made it to be able to show to people at Netflix. You know I mean? Man, that sucks. Like, that's, it, it, you know, it reminds me of like, I, I stopped reading uh, most comics and I've actually been really happy about coming back to, you know, strictly stuff like, strictly sort of like indie stuff like, um, and and then like indie means something different to me now than it did when I was reading comics. But like stuff like your stuff or like um, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the thing and now I'm forgetting it. Um, Describe uh, uh, Jesse Moynihan's stuff. Oh God, yeah, uh, the best. Yeah, I like him a lot. I like his. I haven't read his uh, his online comic in a long time. I should it, probably just because it's going to be collected into a book. So I keep being tempted to read forming online. And I'm just like, I just want to hold it in my hands. But the thing about forming is like, that's right. That's what it's called forming. Uh, it's been a long time since I read it, but like the thing about forming is you, you kind of have to revisit it periodically because it is so dense and weird. It's so dense that I, I, I honestly, no offense to him. I don't think it's conducive to read it as, as a, as a web comic. No, not at all. It's got a cast of like thousands of characters and some will disappear and come back. And if you're holding, holding it in a book, it, it, easier to keep it in your mind you know well i think i think also like he probably moynihan started forming like when he was just kind of like oh, i don't know what i'm doing i'm a storyboard artist on some stuff and like whatever and then it just like became a thing for him i not like not like i mean i that makes it sound like it's super ultra profitable and i have no idea i don't know oh i have i, I, don't, I don't know moynihan at all that's probably more no. profitable what he does on cartoons adventure time and stuff like that yeah of course but like um like, I think it just became sort of like a, a project he really valued. Like, I, that that's something I just pick up from reading it. Like, it seems like he yeah. really cares about it. And, like, it strikes me that if you start something as a webcomic and then you start really caring about it as, like, a book comic, it's just kind of like, well, I guess I'm just going to have to roll with the punches on this one. Yeah. And also, well, see, so I feel like there's something when someone's making a thing as a uh, – you know, as a work of passion for themselves, not because it's something that's going to get them a Netflix deal. I feel like the the quality on just that basic level, I the it gives it gives such wiggle room for the author or the writer or artist, whatever, to to really do whatever the fuck they want. Yeah, no, and and like 
And it gives yeah, no, you're right. And it like it gives stakes to those choices as well. Where like, you know, if you're making it for Netflix, the stakes are well, will Netflix think this is interesting and will it land us a TV deal? Whereas if you're making it for yourself, the stakes are well, like if I if I make this choice, how does it impact the story that I'm trying to tell and I care about? Like that's that's like a totally different kind of calculus that you're doing. I'm I've been working on a book right now, uh, this comic that I'm drawing since about 2017, and it's just one comic, and it's going to be you know maybe 400 pages long. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's funny because I don't have a publisher yet. My old publisher actually is stopped being a publisher. Oh, that's that's a bummer. <laughs> I mean, it's Koyama Press and they're in Toronto and, you know, because the Canadian government stopped giving art grants or uh, yeah. cut back on art grants. Just like being more like the U.S. Yeah, it's great. They So Koyama decided, like, you know, we're going to use our money and our, our profile to give artist grants within Toronto, which is cool as hell, but it, it doesn't help me. <laughs> no, you got to move now. <laughs> I got to move to Toronto right now. Toronto's great. It's expensive. It, it's actually Toronto's cool as hell. Every time I've been there, I've had a really good time. Yeah, I like it. I mean, I I've only been there. I don't know, like the one time I went there for a conference, but I thought it was great. Um, but yeah, no, I don't. I don't think you should move. It's got it's got all of the problems that literally every major city in the world has right now. I mean, it's 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 a little like Canadian New York City, and like and it, it's got yeah. like a third the size. I don't know what I'm basing that on. It it feels like like if you just chopped New York really small, which is awesome. But uh, all the artists I know who are like grew up there, are like it sucks. I, it's so hard to live here. Everything's so expensive, and everything I care about is closing, and yuppies are moving in. And it's like, yeah, that's. The same as everywhere else. Oh, not New York, certainly. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, dude. I, uh, been, I don't. I don't know if, what is going to happen to New York. Yeah, I'm not sure either. With all the, with all the, I mean, the pandemic has hit so hard there. Yeah, and you know, God willing, people survive. I don't. Yeah, I mean, people will survive. I think, like, saying I don't. I don't know. Will people pay rent to be in New York? Like, I mean, you might have you might just have a, a return to that sort of like, I mean, not full on. Like, there's no there's no going back to the, the 1970s New York, but it's plausible that it becomes less of a I mean, you have a sort of like miniaturized version of white flight, but it's like white flight towards distance between people. Right. Yeah. I wonder, like, you know, I'm, I live in Connecticut just outside of the city. I grew up in Brooklyn. Mm hmm. Most of my friends and family are in New York right now, and you know, they're the people who can are sheltering in place. But like, one of my best friends had a sublet was in a sublet that ended April first and non-negotiable. He had to move. Oh, during that's horrible. The pandemic, and also he totally had coronavirus about a month before and had just barely gotten over it. Oh, that's awful. Just talking to him, but he was like, you know, he's with. I don't know why I'm telling us. I'm not giving a name, so it's fine. But he's he's living with his girlfriend now. He moved in because his his new place that he moved into during the pandemic might have bed bugs. Yeah, that's not good. You don't want to have you don't want to have bed bugs on top of the pandemic. So he's moved in with his girlfriend, even though she lives in a place that's not supposed to have dogs. He brought his dog anyway because the pandemic. Who cares? And he's near a hospital complex, and at night he can hear the refrigerated trucks outside the morgue. Mm. Talk, oh. So fucking like. 
all of my friends that were there, I'm just like worried day and night. Like that's incredibly dark. Yeah. It's, I mean, I, I can only imagine it's just like terrifying. Like, I, and I, I get it. Like the, the, it, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's extremely hard. It's so funny. Cause I feel like I, I have all of my friends are falling into two groups of people who are just like, Oh yeah, weird. I'm just in my house all the time, but whatever. And people who are just like, knuckle bitingly freaked out. All the time. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly the former, like it's it, but like the, the weird thing about it, right. Is, is, um, the, the way that people act when they are, uh, when they're in the former is like, I've seen a lot of people being like, uh, looks like the mortality rates if they hold will be even less than just flu from flu and coronavirus. Is this some sort of hoax? And it's like, no, we're all in our houses 24-7. We're practicing extraordinarily aggressive uh, quarantining techniques. Like, if in fact that is true, which there's no evidence that it is, um, that will be the reason. Like, it's it's not because all of a sudden, like, this was a trick. Like, people are absolutely. That's, that's the scary thing about anti-vaxxers and herd immunity because mm-hmm. that other people are – are immunized means that their kids don't get sick. So then they don't believe that vaccines work. Right. Yeah, exactly. Which, like the, it seems kind of like the ultimate libertarian take on the world. It's be like, work for me, fucker. What do I like it? Like, you know, <laughs> self-involved and endangering other people. It's like, but I had a really weird thing. That, so I'm, I'm in Connecticut. I'm kind mm-hmm. of in suburb uh, countryside. And it's like, you know, it's, uh, I'm really doing well that I can walk around outside and walk through the woods and stuff. But like yeah. the other day, you know, and I'm trying to walk a lot cause I can't go to the gym and I don't want to put on like 700 pounds while I'm in here. But, uh, the other day I was walking and you know, it's like, there's a lot of old houses around here, sort of like neoclassical, like 19th century farmhouses that people bought up and a lot of people made them into like big mansions and stuff. For sure. Well, I was walking up on this hill last Saturday and, uh, just, you know, nice, really affluent street with, like, uh, horse farms and stuff. And I walked past this <laughs> this house, and I noticed that there are, the whole driveway is full of cars. It's all full of... Right. They're full of, like, not even just cars. They are all luxury SUVs, like uh, BMWs and Range Rovers and stuff. And I'm like, are they having, like, a party? Yeah, just chilling out. I walk past and they're literally having a kid's birthday party. It looks like, and there's that is nuts. Forty to fifty, and this is last Saturday. This isn't like early March or something. That is like that is so yeah. No, I mean, but that happens. Like people, people just don't. People behind us in the in the neighborhood behind uh, where I live, um, this is sort of the opposite because this is sort of like uh, I live. I live in a in a home and then um there are townhouses behind us. I don't know what the townhouses cost. Townhouses are deceptive. They may cost as much as my house or not as much. I truly have no oh, idea. Yeah. Like impossible for me to tell. But um like everyone there is just like just gets together and plays frisbee in the afternoons and it's like what you guys know there's like a thing like well I just thought it was it was gang, like super, chill out. <laughs> it was also super funny cuz I was walking past this house and I was like I don't know. I also feel like it was around the time that I had just seen news like, yeah, kids can get this and die. And I was like, oh, fuck. I was yeah. Basically, like, you know, it looked like the kids. Well, it's hard to tell how old the kid, how old kids are. Maybe they look like elementary school. But I'm walking past and I think it must have been showing on my face that I was like, oh, this isn't good. And there's two like, I don't even know how to describe it. There's like two kind of nerdy dads 
Like, <laughs> like they look like Ed Helms. Like, okay, but- sure. They they were they're basically like cast casting couch. Uh, like like they called central casting for nerdy dads. Yeah, but they must be like MAGA assholes because they both were smoking cigars and like holding snifters of probably I'm guessing expensive whiskey. Okay, cool. Hey, how are you? Kind of thing, like vibing me for walking by, like, because they probably saw that I was like, why the fuck are you having a kid's birthday party? I mean, just funny that they were. That is a perfectly reasonable question. <laughs> like, big dog me on the street. <laughs> just like, what the fuck is going on here, man? They're, they're trying to, like, lure you in so you get into a fight with them, and then you've, you've, uh, you've committed pandemic hypocrisy. God, yeah. Yeah, that's so messed up. Yeah, I I don't know. Like, I I feel like the the lack of part of me is really happy that I mean, a big part of me is really happy that the that the um, that the mortality rate is low in like in, say, my county. Right. Like, like uh, I live in I live in uh, one of the counties in Pennsylvania that I'm realizing I probably shouldn't say exactly what county I live in. But like. Uh, if anyone wants to come to my house, it is. Uh, but like, no, like I live in a taking notes. I'm like townhouses. Okay, county. Where? Where's the? Yeah, no. I mean, you're you're definitely gonna have a long search, but you could probably find me. <laughs> um, but, no, like uh, the like the, you know, the county I'm in is one of the counties that uh, that first had coronavirus in um, in Pennsylvania. Like we were one of the like the the patient zeros, um, which I mean makes sense. We're close to Philadelphia. It's like totally. That's like that would be where it comes in. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like one of the things about it is like, it was a super big worry. It's like, okay, well it's, you know, the, there are big area, there are areas in this, in this County where it is fairly built up and everything, but there's also areas like uh, my, my folks work at a hospital in the area. And it's like, that's not a big hospital. That's not a hospital that is, uh, it's not going to do so well if there's like, uh, you know, 75 people coming in with coronavirus or something, right? Like it's not built for it. Oh, so, both, both of your parents are working in a hospital. Uh, well, my mom and my stepdad are. Yeah. Oh God. It, uh, yeah. It's a drag. I, it, <laughs> I was about to say, you must be so afraid. I don't want to make you feel bad. No, I mean, I, I'm afraid for, I, I've checked in a couple of times. They're, they, you know, they're, they're very sanguine about it. It's just like, you know what? We're doing our best. We're staying yeah. safe. It's just how it goes. But we're lucky. Cause like the, the, um, the amount of, of cases has been, I mean, surprisingly low for our County, which is great. Um, but then like a part of me is also like, I really hope people understand that, you know, like, no, of course, like America has done a horrible job at this. And like, you know, we, we 100% are, screwing it up but like the small things we've done have caused positive impacts in you know the mortality rate and i'm just like i I keep worrying like man there's going to be someone who just like does not get that and just thinks this was all fake and ruins everything for us beyond that i'm worried about the fact i just saw like some kind of news headline that i didn't even click on because i figured i'd get so mad that i punched the wall but it was like it was smart Trump's like starts shutting down mass testing places. I saw that too. <laughs> I didn't click on that. And then I immediately went into conspiracy mind. And I was like, they're doing this on purpose to keep the numbers down. So when the numbers are down, they can be like everybody back to work. And then the shit continues for years and years and years because they'll keep doing that and killing people instead of letting the Dow go down. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I mean, I think like the problem with the problem with uh, the coronavirus right now, I think is, I mean, there's, it's a ridiculous way of framing this. There's a lot of problems with the coronavirus, you know, like as my, as my daughter is fond of saying, um, 
you know, like, especially when she was sort of like dealing with the fact, I mean, it's, it's, you know, totally upended her life. And I'm, I'm sure it's, I, we had, to, we had like her birthday was on, her birthday was during the quarantine. And so we had to, we had to cancel her party. I mean, we did it well before quarantine. Cause it was, it was looking like, okay, like no one, no one is going to come out to a kid's birthday party, which is now funny based on your story. But like, you know, we, we canceled that. Like, and, and, you know, we had to tell her like, look, we have to cancel your birthday party. Like, I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. Like, you know, we really feel bad and, and we wish this wasn't the case. And she took it really well. Like she was, she was really good about it, but like, that's good to hear. I know she's a, yeah, she's, she's a, she's kind of a trooper, which is, you know, very helpful. All things considered. It's also funny. Cause I, I had my birthday party during quarantine as well. I live with my parents. So my parents gave me something that got me well before quarantine. <laughs> nice. What they gave me was cologne. Ooh. And they get me. It's nice cologne. It's a, uh, it's cologne that just smells like pine tar. It's a cologne that I like. And it's like, oh, that's nice. That gives us a certain kind of feel. It, I like that. It doesn't smell like, you know, like CK1 or something. It literally just smells like a pine tree. But it was just funny to like get this thing and be like, well, cologne. Next time I'm in a group of people, I'll wear this. You know? <laughs> like, you just got to get set for winter, man. Like, like next winter, just before the current, like the week, the week uh, grace time we have before, the, like after the case and then before the next one, uh, you just got to get out in some groups where that cologne. <laughs> so, so one night, I literally took a shower, put on a little bit of cologne, and went to bed. And I was like, all right. <laughs> That's just classy. That's just a way of making things nice. <laughs> yeah, it's also funny because, you know, I used to live in Japan for a while. So a lot mm-hmm. of friends are in Japan and I was talking to them, you know, like a month ago. And my friend Sato, I was like, oh, yeah, well, you guys have it under control. Like, you know, there's no cases of Corona there. And he was like, yeah, realistically, I think there probably are. And they're literally just not releasing it because they want the Olympics to stay. And <laughs> The minute they canceled the Olympics, they're like, yeah, we got a bunch of cases of Corona, too. You know, <laughs> Yeah, sorry, guys. We were kind of trying to stay quiet on the Corona thing. <laughs> so, yeah. But like as 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 Tilly's want to say, like, you know what? No one likes coronavirus. Like no one actually likes. And it's just it's an important thing to remember that there's nothing good about coronavirus. It's no, no one's no one's happy about it. Um, yeah. But one of the things I was saying before we started oh, yeah. was I literally had the thing where I was like, OK, fuck it. I'll be super productive. And that's it. And then it was just like I, tons of people I know are going through the same exact thing where you're like, OK, I'm going to use this time for. And then it's like. You can put a lot of really weird, adverse pressure on yourself. To oh, yeah. Totally not productive. Like. Well, you're just doing like you're doing a big version of like what I do, and I'm sure you've done too. Sometimes where like I'll get a day, right? Like where it's like, okay, this day doesn't have anything in it, and I haven't been super productive recently. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to work all day, and I'm going to write, you know, three thousand words in my in my book, and that'll that'll be good. Like that'll that'll get me a lot closer, and like I'll I'll feel a lot more confident about my deadlines and stuff. And like, if you do that, it just ends up being a day where you write twenty words because oh. you're just the whole day. You're just like, what am I? I gotta, I gotta write that stuff. I gotta write that stuff. Just like freaking out the whole day. God, I had a time years ago where I was working two jobs and I basically worked every day all day, and then Saturday night I would hang out with friends, and then Sunday was always my be productive day. Okay. And I literally never did anything for like nine months. Yeah, of course not. One day I would do nothing and then feel horrible. It's just a way to make you feel bad. 
Like it's <laughs> literally just the way to make you feel like, oh, what I did, if I did anything, was certainly not enough. Yeah, and I remember literally once going and walking around in a park and being like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, I gotta get my and being like, no, maybe I'm allowed to do this. You're enjoying a park. You're not allowed to enjoy a park. Stop enjoying a park. Get back to work. Go to your dark apartment and work on your comics. So it was just, yeah, so it's also just funny because, like, this is a, hey, considering my lot in life and how good things are, I don't want to complain, but I literally have a book coming out next month. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was like, I was supposed to go to Toronto for the debut of it at a big comic show there. That I was supposed to go to... TCAF? Yeah, TCAF. Okay. I was supposed to go to a show in June in... Uh, Chicago uh, show called Cake that I've never been to, but I've heard it's really cool, and that's canceled too. And it's just kind of like, huh? And then if you yeah. promoting your own stuff, being like, "Hey guys, <laughs> yeah, next month, please go and ask your bookstore to order this thing if you can. I don't want you to get it from Amazon, but this thing's coming out. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I like I I was planning my my twenty four hour stream again to like to to benefit like the you know just to basically to pay my to pay the people who helped me with the show. I almost said workers, which is a horrible way of thinking about anything in my life. That's to, been calling them contractors. To imagine that I have like responsibility over people is like a terrifying thing, and and, and does not describe the relationship properly as they are just doing all the heavy lifting. Um, but the the um. Like, you know, Julian, who does the production and, and everything. If Julian, if you're listening to this, hello, and thank you for all your hard work. Um, but yeah, like Julian and Liv and, and John and, and anyone who's like a, a frequent guest on the show or whatever. But like I, this happened and I was like, yeah, like I can't, I'm not asking anyone to give me money. Like it's yeah. like a nightmare time. Like why would I ever do that? And so I just, I just like, I said to my discord, I was like, if this isn't happening, if you want to, here's the ways to do it. But I am not making anyone feel like they are responsible for giving me money at this point. It is hard to self-promote right now. Yeah. And I, I had a bunch of plans of doing like a self-promotion thing of to raise money. And I was going to, I don't even know, I should probably not even bring this up, but I was going to try to give to the Sanders campaign to do uh-huh. something like that about a week ago. <laughs> oh, why, why wouldn't you, give, why wouldn't you uh, bring that up today? It's like, has, has there been news that I've missed? You know what? I was so angry that I, that I almost like, flipped around into like just total just like ah like some kind of bizarre some sort of like galactic breath of the universe entered me and i heard like the unbeating heart of the universe and was just like yes okay you know like <laughs> i'm i'm okay now <laughs> it was we don't really we don't really have to talk about this driver but if you want to we can but it's- oh i mean you know no i think i think we should talk about the unbeating heart of the universe but i, I yeah i mean like sanders sanders is like yeah I, th- so you know today well, the day we're recording this is the day that bernie sanders dropped out of the race um for me it was it was a much more muted reaction because it felt like it was something that was coming for a long time and it felt like something that he was sort of forced to do because the everyone was still holding primaries. And so it's like, well, oh, the fact that he had to make the moral decision to not send out people to a pandemic to die by voting in person at primaries, uh, fucking evil and ridiculous. And yet is the truth of what happened. It is extremely dark and it's the only way you can understand it. I think the only thing is that have made me mad about uh, Sanders dropping out. I, I think, I think Bernie's email was fine. I know a lot of people are on him about calling uh, Joe Biden a very fine man and like, 
listen, that's just the form. That's just like that's that's who he's been. I would have loved if literally six months ago he got up and was just like, "Fuck you, fuck you." But yeah, never going to be that guy. Like, no, that's not him. And like, that's yeah, truly, truly not him. That's not the way he does it. And like, also. I, I I can't imagine a a campaign uh, ending email where you're just like all of my all of my opponents are like utter <laughs> utter garbage and like it may like you know that that Simpsons episode where uh, where Homer becomes the the garbage commissioner and it goes horrible and like the guy who's who's played by Steve Martin comes back and he just says like I just I'm so happy to be able to come back and tell you you're completely screwed <laughs> and like walks off stage like that's just not something that happens in real life. <laughs> So like yeah I I don't know like it's just like it's just form like I don't it doesn't matter if he thinks that or not but like I thought the rest of the email there he was like yeah look like you know I'm really proud of everything everyone who worked with me did like I don't center myself here like this is this is all about you guys and everyone who helped me like I thought that was fine like no, I thought it was great it was good. Also, it was nice especially since like was it last summer I can't even remember what it was when they had that rally in Queens where Casio uh, Cortez talked and everything and they literally outlined a thing where they were like no this is like turn around and look at all the people next to you you don't know them will you fight for them like that yeah. level of messaging so powerful to me because i feel like literally every every politician i've ever felt i needed to support there was always that thing of like yeah but they're a fucking politician so you have to put up with a lot of bullshit Right. Like even with the Casio Cortez, I mean, I think people are, are dealing with that right now where it's like, oh, but she's being a politician. But so I'm just saying that messaging then. Yeah. So powerful that I was like, you know what? The long term will probably hopefully building those 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 grassroots uh, networks that hopefully will stay because like. We're, we're fully aware that it's a one party system right now. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, more than ever. I think like I think that's absolutely true. Like we, we just realized these are not. And I just love the amount of like I had to stop looking at Twitter because the amount of people's the different like interpretations of people's grief that they were acting out. And the main one that annoys the fuck out of me was literally everybody I know being like. Oh, way to get your hopes up, idiot. Told you. Like, <laughs> Ernie, that's for believing in anything stupid. Just being like, cool, thank you. Thank you for this. The the funniest uh, the funniest riff on those kinds of tweets I saw was uh, my, my friend Matteo tweeted, like, uh, Antifa Waluigi tried to warn you about uh, electoralism, man. <laughs> Yo, I legit saw a million things like that. Like, do you remember when, uh, when like, just some ridiculous name, like, like Andreas Mario Kart Antifa one said, he'll never bring up Epstein. That's how you knew that Bernie was full of shit. And I was like, yes. Yeah. I, I did remember that. I should, I should have listened. I should have listened to Bernie say Epstein at the debates. Like it would have been cool if he did, but like, that's how they're grieving by saying that was the silver bullet. That's, that's actually a really good point. Like it is, it is all grief. Like that's, that's the thing. Like it is, it is. Yeah. It's acting something out. So, but yeah, it's it's a it's a drag. Like I, you know, we were supposed to record last night. I screwed up and fell asleep. But like, it, there's a there's a part of me that is kind of happy and sad that we ended up recording on the night Bernie dropped out because it is, I don't know, it's its own sort of like extraordinarily performative and strange moment in time that yeah, it will, I'm kind of glad I got to like document. I was talking to like you know I talked to family members and stuff about it, but it was just like. Everybody, even I know in real life, people who are not uh, repping for Antifa while Luigi were all having their own like, 
well, we kind of knew this was going to happen after Super Tuesday. And you're like, everyone was dealing with it in a different way. But it's funny that across my family and my friends, there's there's a basic blanket fuck Joe Biden. I will never vote for Joe Biden. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> like, it's great. It's like. I saw a great a great tweet. I, I forget if it was by I think it was by I think John wrote it. My my passionate co-host wrote it. But like I I'm not remembering right now. So John, I'm sorry if you did. Um, but the the it was like basically what's going to happen is if Joe Biden loses, uh, the near attendance of the world will tell you that uh, it was your fault. And if Joe Biden wins, the near attendance of the world will tell you that they don't need you. So. Just go ahead and vote your conscience. Like, don't, don't worry about it. There's really nothing that's going to go wrong if you just kind of vote the way you want. Like, as of, like, three to four months ago, the near attendance of the world and that whole information apparatus arm of their messaging people have become, like, minority report precogs floating around in milk. And all they can talk about is how we lost them the election. <laughs> they don't even talk about the election. They don't even talk about their candidate. No, yeah. This has literally been how we lost it for them. Right. No, every time. Yeah. Been in that gear for five years now. And it's like, fuck those people. Like, no one ever has to listen to them. And the weirdest thing about them, especially now, considering Biden's record, on the record, even recent history, in which you and I were alive, and even slightly before we were born, He's a racist. Like, he yeah. always has been a racist. One of the things he was doing when he was running this time was bragging about how he palled around the segregationists who most people didn't even know until you Googled them. And you say, like, why is he talking about them? <laughs> yeah, like, oh, like, just like friends with a guy who was friends with Strom Thurmond? That's a, did, that's a choice. Get up and he'd be like, I knew Salacious G. Tailfeathers the sixth of. <laughs> he was a great man. You're like, who the fuck is that? And you look it up and it's just like, a picture of like a boss hog looking guy, like eating a black baby. And you're like, why is he? What? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it's like, even, even my friends who sort of are, um, I like, I have friends who, who aren't as like into Bernie as I am. Like it, it happens like, you know, like, and are more into, into sort of like the center of things. Like I'm not, I realize this makes me a bad, um, whatever you want, but like, I, I have friends who like very much disagree with me upon politics. Oh. And I just don't, really talk politics with them but like the the even they were they're like i wonder who biden's gonna pick to, uh, as his running mate to make him look like moderately capable it's like man that is uh, that is not the thing you want to hear from your base yeah right i well we'll see now, what happens it, yeah the reason i brought up the fact that he's such you know historically through his actions have oh a clear racist yes passed laws that are you know, just immiserated everybody in this country, especially Uh people of color, especially. And the fact that he's got a pretty credible rape allegation against him that the media for some reason won't talk about, but Trump will talk about and that will ruin him. Mm -hmm. Oh, of course. The fact, all of the posturing about sort of the uh, white male energy that made people leftists, it was is so obviously for show, and it makes me sad that we bothered even addressing it. For oh, long. yeah. I mean, ever, ever dealing with like the ever, ever like giving. And, and I mean, you know what? Like if, if we have to if we have to sort of like Monday morning quarterback it um, here, I will say Bernie shouldn't have ever 
given any credence to the Bernie bro thing. Like, and I, I realized like he didn't have a lot of choice. Like it was, it was sort of like one of those things that was thrust on it where it's like, okay, well, considering, if you, considering the media was so unified, he basically, there was a, a time there was probably, you know, majority of this primary until it seemed like he was going to win. They didn't even talk about him. And if they did, you know, I get the times I read the New York times every morning. Mm-hmm. The only time Sanders would be talked about on the front page, usually under the fold was about Bernie Broism. Yeah, sure. And like, I, it's like, you know, if that is the only way that he's talked about in all of the media, like, you have to, yeah, you have to account for it. But like, man, it's just like, it is, it is so obvious that nothing he could have done would have ever made anyone happy. Like nothing, nothing he could have said about it would have made anyone like, will actually be okay with like him. Like he wouldn't have changed any minds. We saw, we saw, well, we saw the, the sort of centrist and hard right wing media basically fuck over Corbyn with a similar thing. Oh, yeah. They, you know, and I think the labor really fucked up in England because they'd be like, yeah, I think you guys are all anti-Semites. And then labor people would honestly answer and say like, yeah, labor has had some anti-Semitism problems, especially in the past. Instead of saying like, fuck you, shut up. Because the people who are accusing labor of being anti-Semites literally went to the unveiling of a statue of one of, not even the first female, first female parliament member, but the second one who was an open Nazi sympathizer, mm-hmm. like literally when the Nazis existed. So the people who were accusing labor of being anti-Semites were going and celebrating somebody who was a Nazi. <laughs> right. It's like you don't give those people credence. And I remember saying this to a friend of mine who was freaking out, a trans friend of mine who was freaking out about, about uh, the, this seems like a million years ago, but the fact that people were losing their mind about Rogan. Mm, right. Yeah. They were like, I hate Rogan too. And I was like, yes, yeah, so do I. But he, Sanders didn't literally change his message to step up and say, I'm homophobic. I'm transphobic. I'm a misogynist just like you. None of that happens. So you don't have to worry about it. And you don't have to respond to bad faith arguments from people who want to destroy your campaign, which they 100% are. Like the whole the whole point of, of anyone talking about the Rogan interview was to say like oh Bernie do you like do you, try, do you like did you see what this guy had to say about like this issue, and it's like what what's Bernie going to say at that point uh, to the guy who just endorsed him to his entire massive audience oh yeah I hate that guy, but also the other thing is like the same people who are saying that are the same people who are were actively supporting you know a candidate who was actively courting and supporting Henry Kissinger, mm-hmm. sixteen. So it's like, yeah, well, and I mean, and I mean, prefer someone who has some fucking stupid, dumbass like Rogan saying, hey, this guy's pretty good to act to to actively wanting to be on stage, hang out with Henry Kissinger. Well, and like, remember, it, this got this got so little press. But remember, like, there was that time when Hillary did that interview with Chelsea. And like, at one point, Chelsea was like, Hillary was like, well, I don't know, like, I have a problem with this whole like, uh the whole like uh, bathroom issue with, with trans people. And Chelsea was like, Chelsea was like, mom, it's 26. It's like 2017 or whatever. And everyone's like, yeah, Chelsea, Chelsea got it. She's going to help her mom out. And like, no, but Hillary, I was like, are you kidding me? Like that is a, that is horrible. Has multiple times said kind of almost the exact script of like, sort of like the British turf, like the turf thing. Yeah. About like, about how trans people aren't people. They're basically, nefarious people putting on a disguise to attack people like yeah has been on record basically re- saying that 
you know. But I mean, she's she's just much better on uh, on trans issues than Bernie. Well, she also just doesn't have you know a whole fucking world of media people attacking on them. <laughs> no, I mean exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh uh, no, I've 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 seen levels of I've seen transphobia been leveled at people who I don't know. I had tons. I had a friend who was like, "Oh yeah, I heard uh, that Chapo podcast is super transphobic," and I was like, "Yeah, I've literally never heard them say anything." about attacking trans people they've made fun of a bunch of crazy bathroom warrior right-wing religious people if you took that and, and clipped that out maybe you'd think they were saying it but also like they're huge supporters of chelsea manning like but i've heard people say chapo is transphobic and i couldn't disabuse them of that i mean someone i i a friend of mine now like i i don't know if uh, she's listening but if she is i'm glad we're friends now i, I don't bring the story up out of malice but uh, uh a friend of mine uh we became friends because um, uh, someone was, that was years ago, years and years ago. Someone was arguing with me. It was actually probably before Chapo, um, but someone was arguing with me and, uh, and, and they were like, well, you know, like you're like, this guy just always says problematic stuff. Like he thinks he's like, you know, people, people say he's like a leftist or whatever, but he's like, he's, he hangs out with some like terrible people. And the person was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure like this is the kind of guy who would, uh, who would laugh quietly when he heard like a, uh, a joke at the expense of a trans person. And I just responded. I was like, I definitely would not like, that is not who I am. Um, Wait, they were talking about you. Yeah. 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 As like that, that kind of stuff happens. Like you just like that, like also, people, people get a, a vision of you. Probably have a, have a lived history where they have to deal with people being shitty to them. Absolutely. I don't, I don't blame them for thinking that. I'm just saying like, yeah. It's like, yeah. Like it's, it is, it is like one of those things that, like I bring it up not to say like it even me like the most innocent person in the world, um, <laughs> but like more more to say like you know the the like that's not true of me and like I became friends with that person because I said like hey that's not like I would never do that like that's not anything that like my politics or my ideas of the world are you know that's like diametrically opposed and we we chatted and we we came to common ground but like the point is it's. If you if you just know someone from reputation, or you just know something someone as like uh, via their like their tweets or via their uh, public presence or whatever, like Bernie, uh, if you if you only know Bernie from like people talking about Bernie, there's a way to think a lot of things about him that aren't true, or a way to think a lot of things about anyone that aren't true, and like that kind of abstraction is like is absolutely something that you know Twitter and like just distancing ourselves, uh, you know metaphysically before we did physically uh not to be too corny uh is is just like it's it really it, it helps like it helps make that happen no it's true and it's also you have i more and more i think the fact that you know everybody during the quarantine is extremely online but face the country has been extremely online for at least the last five six years mm -hmm. for sure I feel like people I know in real life who I don't even think of as using social media that much have complicated opinions that are like those social media opinions that are like, yeah, that thing's good. But the fans of that, especially the fans who think this about the other fans are really shitty. And you're like, you don't have to care about, you know, like the fa the fans of fans of Rick and Morty. Like we were all laughing at the Steven Universe fans back in the day. We didn't realize that it was the canary in the coal mine. <laughs> <laughs> God. No, I think the thing that the initial thing that I that I thought was like the existence of bronies. Oh, bronies. Yeah. that And, and like they brought that up on uh, I mean, this is when I was listening to a lot more NPR, but they brought that up on uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. 
that was like a thing. Bronies were mentioned oh, there. It's crossed over. Though. And I was like, well, that was like in 2010. And I was like, they're talking about bronies. That's weird. <laughs> like, oh God. I can't even remember who it was. I remember some alt-right guy getting yelled at for being a piece of shit during the last election. He was like, Actually, the man you're addressing has written the most popular brony version of a Fallout novel, blah, blah, blah. And it was like a novel of the Fallout series through a brony lens. And he was bringing it up to be like, and my sales on Amazon would say opposite. And I was like, oh, shit, these guys are still around. I like for me, like, I guess bronies were sort of a weird media thing that I could understand as like a, a almost within the old media sense of things where it's like, oh, like. It's a it's an unexpected fan group like that happens. You like you know like like sorority girls for Star Trek or whatever, right? Like the unexpected fan group thing is super cool. But the place that I've only ever like interacted with bronies on the internet. Was, oh yeah, was when they were all right wing shitheads. So. Uh, yeah, no, 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 for sure. So like I, specifically interesting thing that I have only interacted with bronies during Gamergate when were like brigading my friends and also. During the 2016 election, when I would talk shit about Trump, <laughs> sudden bronies were around, and I was like, "They're still around, but maybe the non-Nazi ones fell off." Yeah, they just they just thought they they found something else to be interested in. Like, I think I think the thing that is literally inexplicable to me is, um, uh, b- b- like, without thinking about the internet. So this would be like the first one for me is uh, is Homestuck. Homestuck's the one that like oh because I never I never got into Homestuck I read a little bit of uh, Problem Sleuth when that came out like that was when I was like I thought it was I don't even mean this dismissive I I liked it was very cute I liked how cute it, yeah, it was fine oh, cool but I kind of fell off and then I kind of I was using Tumblr a lot in 2010 uh, just because there was a huge scene of indie. Yeah, sure. People putting up art stuff. Makes sense. It was the best place for JPEGs back then. Oh, God, it still is, man. Fucking uh, the fact that you can't really make threads to tag your own art on Twitter and the fact Instagram, you literally can't size your art the way you want it to. Like Mm. as an artist now, everything, all the social media that everyone uses sucks. And it always threatens like, let's go back to Tumblr. And it's like. Sure, but I don't. I know like five people using Tumblr anymore. Like, <laughs> let's, yeah, it's like let's all go to Mastodon or Elo. It's just like a truly empty threat. But so on Tumblr back in the day, I would you know you follow people who follow you follow back, and all of a sudden you're like looking at fan art that you know is fan art of something, but you don't even know what the initial. <laughs> yeah, and there was a thing that I was just seeing over and over again that was like gray skinned people with candy corn horns. And I was just like, but drawn in anime styles, drawn in Steven Universe style, draw blah, blah, blah. Like, and then after a while, I was like, what the fuck is that? And someone was like, that's Homestuck. And I was like, that's Homestuck? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. that Then that like that blew my mind because I read like the first, I don't know, 10. Pan- I've never read more. But like, Ed, so if anyone is wondering. Read the first 10 to 20 pages where it was a, a joke about like a video game inventory and picking stuff up and putting it. And in. I was like, this becomes and I still don't know how it gets there. But like, it's like this becomes like that understands and stuff. Thousand different timelines that are all intersect. And it's just like, dude, uh, all right, man. I don't know. Like, I, I got enough to think about. Like, I <laughs> I don't have to, I don't, I don't really, but yeah, like that's the thing that I would not understand without the internet. And I feel like a lot of things are like Homestuck now. Um. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I would I see. It's so funny because like hearing Homestuck described as sort of like this almost infinite thing with all of this 
different levels. It's like, I feel like just an age wise thing. If I was like 12 when it came out, that would sound so good. It would probably be my fucking life. (laughs) Yeah, man. No, absolutely. Like, I think like, that's why I would never judge. Um, I like, I, I have a very complicated relationship with Homestuck. Like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't like it. Like that, that kind of thing. But like, I don't, you know, if, if, if you're into it, I'm not mad at you about that. Like it is, it's like, it's just, um, it's absolutely like something that, you know, is not, I, I forget like who said this, like, um, it's like that thing of like, it's not for you. Like this isn't for you. (laughs) No, absolutely. And it's like, yeah, I feel like last time I was on, we talked about just things being not for you in that Mm. day. But, uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, that that's something that I'm actually like super into, which is like the the distinction between taste and and aesthetics. Where like you can make an argument about like like I would make an argument about your work and say like I I mean like and this is this is to be nice to you, but also because I know we've both uh, seen your work. Um, I, I think you have. Uh, uh, yeah, once. <laughs> but uh, like I would say like there's work of yours that I would say is like aesthetically valuable and like does interesting aesthetic things. Um, and like, if someone were to say like, well, I didn't like it, like, I don't like, I don't like, uh, Deegan's stuff. I would say like, well, okay. Um, I disagree with you. I like Deegan's stuff, but like, it doesn't really matter based on my argument about aesthetics. Like it doesn't matter if you like the stuff or not. Um, and I feel like that is super interesting to me to think about like, okay, so like what does and doesn't matter in terms of that, um, a lot of people don't like that, so like I don't talk about it all the time. But the one place people are willing to listen to me about that is when it comes to, okay, like is this for you? Like who is this for? Like you know. Well, there's that really great uh, Nabokov essay that. Uh, what is it about? I think I think the main topic of it is the Kafka's Metamorphosis. Okay. Do you know that one? I don't. It's really great. It's uh he. he Christ, I hope I'm probably mixing up two things in my mind, but that's the one where he says the famous line that there's no beauty without pity because mm, right. dies, and the world dies with the individual and the manner dies with the matter. But that's in that essay, he talks about a bunch of different people walking down a country road or something and all of their different experiences of the same exact thing. You know, like a naturalist would look at the trees and have different opinions about the different trees. Someone who grew up there would have a string of memories that they all felt while being in that place. Like, right, right. And yeah, that. Let me look up that essay so I can okay. just right. tell it to listeners because it's 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 one of the best things ever. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's a great way to think about like you know if you're. If, it's a great way to think about art when you want to yell at someone for not enjoying something that you enjoyed, like. Okay, it's it's called lecture. It's called it's just called lecture on the metamorphosis by Vladimir Nabokov. Well, okay, easy to remember. Um, <laughs> That's uh, and if you look up, it's it's just in the full text is there at Kafka dot org. If you just uh, and it it's great. It's uh, weirdly actually a a home movies fan site, um, but <laughs> but like you know, good good for that too. Um, but yeah, no, it's like it's. I, I think that's exactly right. Like it it is. You know, like that that element of, of something of everything being sort of different for anyone viewing it 
until you actually level it on. I mean, that's what's so important to me about aesthetics is that like it becomes the way you can talk about art with people as opposed to just like yelling about it and saying like this is good, like this is better than the thing you like. Um, that's that's also the one of the yeah. I mean, there's a way to say this that seems almost anti-intellectual, but the fact of the matter is like having agreed upon terms to talk about art is definitely good because it cuts through. <laughs> Yeah, it cuts through everybody coming from different directions. But the thing that makes me sad is those terms become camps, become, you know, banners. Oh, 100 percent. And then, you know, like 90 percent of the time, what you're talking about, the art is basically just the arena or the fucking fuel. It has nothing to do with. With 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 anyone having an aesthetic experience with a thing, that's one of the my favorite things about seeing something with someone or reading something at the same time as someone and talking about it. Like everybody that I care about is always coming at things from wildly different (laughs) approaches. Yeah, no, for sure. And I I think like, you know, one of the things I talked about uh, in the last episode, um, the one that was like kind of on quarantine was like about this idea of guilty pleasure. Like in in defense of fluff? Yeah, in defense of fluff. It's only 15 minutes long. Listen to it yet. I just it, wanted to. It's basically about like it's about my obsession with this dumb gotcha game. Um called I don't know if it's dumb. I, I like it. I should I shouldn't be I should actually like practice what I preach. I it's a game I, I like a lot called uh, Ark Knights, which is, you know, just like a it's a gotcha game. It's an anime gotcha game. Like it's, you know, you 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 it's a tower defense game. It's not like particularly deep in terms of its mechanics or you know, whatever. Um, but it's fun. fun. And like, like, I was thinking about that and thinking about Animal Crossing and stuff like that and thinking about games that aren't like, you know, no. revolutionary or like, you know, capital I important and like, and like feeling bad about playing those or feeling bad about enjoying them. And then like part of me was like, you know what? I get to enjoy something like this right now. Like this is a horrible time. And then the other, like another part of me was like, but what is diff- like, why, why only now? Like, and like <laughs> the guilty pleasure element is like, yeah, like I don't, I don't like the only thing that is guilty about a guilty pleasure is that you've you've talked yourself into the the sort of Gary Becker idea of uh, wanting to do uh, human capital right, and so like yeah, you know, like you you're mad that you're not like you know learning a language, and so we're going right back around to the beginning again. But you're mad that you're not like learning a language as opposed to um, like this is also if I'm remembering correctly one of the things we talked about probably on this that I was like I was like. Yeah, I got really mad that I got good at Dark Souls enough to beat this boss, so I stopped playing. <laughs> you're allowed to not. You're allowed to get good at a leisure thing. Like, yeah. Okay. No, that's exactly right. Like it is. It is totally okay to just like enjoy. I did I did with? I was actually Bloodborne. With Bloodborne, I had the thing where I was like, I could be learning how to fucking sew a quilt. What the fuck? Like just you know, stupid. But like no, but it's but it's like it's it's something very relatable though. I think a lot of people feel that way. Like I, I feel like. I feel like most people feel that way right now where it's like, you know, oh, I, I didn't read every book in my house yet. Like I've seen a lot of people say that, like where it's like, oh, I haven't, you know, I, I haven't used this time to read Proust. And it's like, you, you know, you don't have to like just because you aren't productive at your job right now because you can't be uh, because, you know, your job is uh, closed right now. Um, <laughs> um, it's funny you should say that because I literally t- today I was talking to a friend of mine who just read through a. Uh, Against the Day by Pynchon, which oh, yeah. I, I never finished. And I was just literally just being like, now I should force myself to read it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's like, you know, it's 
that's fine. Like there's a there's there's something very good about that. Like I was, you know, I was talking to my wife the other day and I realized like two of my favorite novels are just like two novels that are like people routinely quit reading because they just don't want to bother with them, which are and they're just like novels by white guys. Like they're they're very unfashionable favorite novels. Oh, I'll tell you what they are. Uh, okay. Wait, did we talk about this last time too? No. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, just you're gonna tell me off the air about your no, novel. no. I'll tell you now. Um, um, my two favorite novels are uh, well, two of my favorite novels. I won't commit to them. I'm bad at picking favorites. That's like sure. I never do that. Either. I hate that. But like, like one thing, like I will say, these are two of my favorite novels, and I always think about them when I'm thinking about the novels that I have gotten the most out of and enjoyed the most are uh, Moby Dick. And um, uh, uh, William Gaddis's J.R. Uh, Christ, <laughs> I know, and like no one, rough one, man. no one reads J.R. And I keep telling people that it's great, and I'm never going to get anyone to read it. I feel like I feel like reading Moby Dick is easier and more enjoyable than reading J.R. Okay, look, there's there's a cheat. Sh- it, that's not true. Uh, there, there's there's a cheat sheet for J.R. online. If you Google. Uh, like JR annotations or something like that. There's a place called like the Gaddis Foundation that literally did a thing where they wrote out the pages of who's talking where in JR. And so, like, like yeah, yeah, well, that makes life like, very easy. Well, I don't feel like that's impossible. It's just kind of annoying, right? It, it becomes like you, you think that. And then as you go through, like, if you have a cheat sheet at the beginning, you get to know the form of the book much more easy, much more easily. And then it just like, I didn't use it for the last, you know, 500 pages or whatever. But anyway, the point is. I read JR. I read JR probably a decade ago. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I really enjoyed it. And then as I finished it was like, yeah, I'll never read this again. <laughs> Yeah, see, somebody who who rereads things that I really like. Uh, see, I had the same. I had the opposite thing where I don't. I don't reread things a lot, but I thought to myself, like, I'm definitely going to at some point in my life reread this book. Um, I read. I read Moby Dick twice. Uh, oh, that's only. I skipped around to get to the parts that I remembered and I liked because there's a lot of stuff that you're like, okay, fine. This is how they're making the oil. Okay, you know. Oh, those are the good. Oh, we we can't talk about this. I'm gonna get too mad. Those are the good sections. That's that's the important part. <laughs> They're all seen all, it, all metaphors. Be a dick that I always want to read over and over again, which is the uh, when the triworks scene where okay. he's on where he's at the till and they're burning stuff, and he's just kind of like going in and out of sleep. Yes, while standing up, and he's looking at everybody in the fire, and he's just seeing like devils and shit. That's a really good scene. And there's like there's like there's wisdom in woe, and there's madness in woe, and he's just kind of like. And it just goes off into this whole thing. Also, there's this there's this speech where there's the uh, there's a guy who's like a a naval preacher. Yes, preaching to them. Yes, and he gives this sermon, and halfway through the sermon, you can tell that he's losing his own faith and purpose, and he's basically talking to himself. <laughs> God, that's like that's the thing. Oh God, we're we're already at an hour. We haven't even gotten to the topic. Um, <laughs> We're going to have to either get to the topic or just, like, call this what a wash and, and, and talk again soon. Uh, and I'll just release this as a fun uh, conversation between friends. But the um, – the yeah, like, there's a uh, – one of the things that I think people don't get is that uh, – well, because they only read um, 
Scarlet Letter when they're like 12 or not 12, but maybe like 14. Um, Um, Freshman in high school. Yeah, that's a little it's a little rough to read Scarlet Letter when you're 12. Um, Uh, All you want to do is have sex. And then there's a book telling you like, hey, listen, (laughs) you're going to get that A on you. Uh, But that's not what even the book is about. Faulkner is very against that. Uh, But the thing about Faulkner is he has that same tendency as Melville. Like Melville's a lot more psychedelic than Faulkner, but they were like best buds. And one of the things that is very clear about their writing styles that is similar is like uh, it happens in the House of Seven Gables. If anyone wants to to read a good example, there's just this chapter where all of a sudden um, one of the characters is on a train. I guess two of them are on a train. They're they're escaping from something. I won't say what it is because it would ruin some of the plot. But it just ends up being like the longest chapter, and it's just an excursus on like class and people and ideas and it just happens in the middle of this train ride for no reason and just like the 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 breaking off into like a thesis where it's like okay we're gonna we're gonna talk about some big ideas for a while and uh, oh and they're gonna be important to characterization too i i think that was like just a natural form of the novel as it existed is like probably yes if you read like cervantes or something like there'll be shit going on and then he'll be like time what is time you're like who, who's saying this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was definitely it was definitely more. I'll put on my my uh, I'll put on my history of the novel hat. It was definitely more uh, at the beginning. Like uh, Cervantes is is certainly Cervantes is a weird case because Cervantes is one of those like novels that people are like, well, we can't really call it a novel. Don Quixote is definitely a novel, but it kind of screws up our whole taxonomy if we say like, sure, that's a novel because it happened too early. Uh, but Cervantes is a good example. Um, and then uh, Tom Jones, weirdly, is a good example. Um, and uh, Tristram Shandy, uh, the oh yeah, the yeah. book by uh, Richardson. Oh, no, not Richardson. Sorry. Um, off, homie. Oh, God. Why did I say Richardson? Because I was thinking of Clarissa. Uh, Tristram Shandy's by Lawrence Stern. Uh, but, like, the the whole thing, like, the whole thing about Tristram Shandy and Tom Jones and stuff is that, like, they'll have bits where they're, I mean, Tom Jones, it's just like, what's a novel anyway? This this is what I'm going to try and write for you. I don't know how it'll turn out. Let's uh, let's check in with each other every five chapters and see how we're doing. Um, and then in Tristram Shandy, it's just like, all right, so if we talk about a life, we have to talk about a life from conception on. So uh, uh, let's 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 talk about the time I was conceived. But first, you have to know all the players, and like the whole book is about it's supposed to be his life, and it only gets to him being conceived at like page six hundred, and then ends. Like that's just like that's like the the philosophical bent of novels in that time. <laughs> like from for about like a seven hundred year period, it's just like let's let's be real philosophical for a while. Um, all right, so I'm going to come up with a great, a great segue. All right. Wait, you want me to do it or you want No, no, I, I got it. I got it. Uh, so anyway, that's the history of the novel. Um, <laughs> we cut off. I'll, I'll be honest with the audience. We cut off. Uh, but uh, we're back. And, uh, and I wanted to get into the meat of what we wanted to talk about today, which is, uh, Alex, you wanted to talk to me about um, and, and to everyone about uh, abstraction in video games. And so abstraction is one of those things that I feel like could be taken a billion different ways, especially in our sort of like heavily class focused society. So break down what you mean by this. Well, what, what, what would, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult because it's, it's based on a really specific feeling that's based on sort of the early video games that I played, which, you know, 
the sort of Atari and whatnot was super abstract and that the representation of things was just like, you know, a square and yeah, you're supposed to know from the box art that that was like a knight or a car or something. I didn't, I didn't play those. I, I started playing video games maybe later into, uh, Nintendo. Era. Okay. Yeah. And what was interesting to me about that was it didn't seem it didn't seem that it was figuratively trying to show you a world as much as trying to express things through shorthands that you filled in the rest yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. And because, because I feel like as a kid, there was an idea that, that technology was iterative and the technology we had at home in like Nintendo was nowhere as good as like the technology you would see in an arcade game or something. So when you were playing a video game, it was always like, we were aware of technological limit, weirdly, mm-hmm. which I don't think most people are in most other in most other forms. I don't think people are like when you see a thing in a film, anybody. I don't think most film viewers know about like, oh, well, Ridley Scott is use. It looks like that because he's using this different speed of film. Like, uh, yeah, no, definitely not from from people who work in film and they know those things or they're or have studied film or whatever. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like I know a couple of those things cause I TA to film class like that's, but that's the only reason I know. <laughs> it's like, so what I was thinking about, and this was actually, I pitched this to you like four years ago, but we ended up talking about other stuff. Um, was that the early video games I played had, had a, uh, had a, a sort of feeling to them that, it was a mode of expression in and of itself that like there was sort of a gamic mode of expression. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if you played an early RPG and an enemy showed up and you were playing like Dragon Warrior or something, a combination of the still image of the enemy and the text were what made the action happen. And it was almost, it wasn't necessarily reading and it wasn't necessarily just looking at pictures, but it was a combination of both. And there was a, sort of offload to the imagination to animate it in the same way that like reading a comic book felt. Yeah. And weirdly, as time has gone by and uh, technology has gotten more and more iterative to the point where it seems that the, um, the goal of like making a game is to try to get some kind of like mimesis. I don't even know what to call it to try to act. Yeah, no, I think that's a good way of putting it. I think people are very, like obsessive with with mimesis or by with like like literal reflection of the world. Yeah, it has actually changed what I like about video games insofar as it's kind of the abstraction of movement, the abstraction of of interactivity, and the uh, the abstraction of how things actually look and are shown to you and how you experience them has kind of disappeared to have an experience that feels more like a simulation of a movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. That's weird because one of the things that was the most inspiring to me about about video games and I feel like has directly translated into how I make art was that abstraction into things that sort of leaves space for the viewer or the person to like interact with it in a way that their imagination is doing a large portion. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do. And I think like, you know, it's it's interesting you say that for, for a number of reasons. I think one, because like the idea of abstraction is of course like 
of the moment today. I mean, we, you know, our whole conversation previous to this, like, I think you could argue had to do with abstraction, particularly because like in the moment of just being quarantined, the world becomes abstracted because you're not in it anymore. Like the idea of a, the idea of a world. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it definitely has this kind of level of remove, right. That's like truly alien and strange and like people are responding to daily online by and, and most most people's point of contact with the world itself has gone from you know being online which is a thing that most of us deal with all the time but to that being the sole point of contact right it's... and even people who are very online that is that is rough <laughs> <laughs> but, so but, what, what i was thinking about oh yeah especially in the nintendo days um Games seemed, and I, I don't want to fall into a sort of nostalgic thing where I'm saying like it was good because it was bad, but you know, like, right? Sure. The fact <laughs> the fact that there was severe limits to what you could actually see and what you could actually do in games seemed to bring a sort of level of creativity and a sort of um, creativity is a strange thing to say, but just a level of engagement in that you were imagining so much of it. You know what I mean? Yes, it's kind of like it's kind of like when you when you talk about um, when you hear people talk about making art or making uh, novels or whatever, like where the the idea that the best art is made uh, within limitations, whether or not those limitations are arbitrary, mechanical, uh, put on by some other uh, body or whatever, that like limitations actually are some of the things that make for for the best art. Um, and, and I feel like it's just funny because I so my basic uh, history with playing video games is I started playing Nintendo games and then much later I got into like computer games and I was playing mm-hmm. all of the sort of uh, computer RPGs like uh, like Planescape and the Fallout okay. and stuff like yeah. that. And the majority of those games, what they're interactive, but the majority of most of the action of those games is totally text based. Oh, 100 percent. And like even even when it's not like the the action of I, I had this when I when I talked to Josh Sawyer, who was uh, uh, one of the heads on um, Fallout New Vegas, when Josh and I talked in, in New York recently, like or I guess last year. Sorry. Recent yeah. recent feels different. Um, but like, you know, when, when we chatted, like one of the things that he brought to the table, he was like, oh, we got to like we got to play the old Fallout game. Like, that's one of the things that we'll we'll play live. And it was so weird to see again. Like I played it. I love the original fallout games, but like the, the things that happen when like you shoot someone or whatever, or like someone shoots you, like it is much, much more descriptive within the text as to what is going on. Whereas on the screen, it's just like, so 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 what I really like about that kind of expression, and I'm not saying I want video games to return to that exactly is that what you're seeing on the screen is expressive of a thing, but isn't supposed to be the thing of itself. You know what I mean? Even if you look at like Final Fantasy one or those games, the fact that the majority of those games is combat, but the way it's expressed is a really beautiful non-animated big sprite of an enemy. And that you're a little guy stepping forward and swinging a blade. (laughs) Yeah. Two frames of animation. That's comical and kind of dumb, but what, taught a way of like reading it as like a visual language for me at least that you could imagine from those things being shown to you a very epic <laughs> a very epic fight taking place you know yeah no for sure and i think like you know one of the uh, so one of the things that this makes me think of is uh 
you know, people people going back or people doing retro uh, games at this point. Not not. I mean, definitely people playing retro games, but also people like working within retro styles. And like uh, pixel art, I think in a lot of ways has become like a, a kind of like nostalgic uh, thing. I, I don't. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of I, and I've played a lot of really good pixel art games, but like that is like very very it like trucks very heavily with nostalgia um whereas like i feel like there's a there's a a genre of games right now like um uh, paratopic uh i talked to the, the yeah that was a great interview by the way oh thank you yeah. no i i mean i'll i'll credit um to to uh to my guest but like um uh, she she was amazing um but like uh uh yeah no paratopic is is a is a blast and like it is a blast in many ways because like it's just so strange. Like it feels weird to to well, play because like the it teaches you what I so what I liked about gaming and what I don't see in the triple A space is like something like Paratopic is a perfect example is that it actually teaches you a visual language and it teaches mm. you to read what you're looking at. And then yeah. once it teaches you how to do that smaller moment to moment things it does start taking on a different meaning based on the context and the language of what it's teaching you. You know what I mean? That's, yeah, I totally do. That one is a very flat alienating space so much so that it, it teaches you how to read a flat alienating space. And so much so that when it's not flat, it's a huge deal. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it, it, it changes actually take on really deep meaning. That's a really good way of putting it. Like it reminds me of, and it sort of clarifies something I really like about another game that that was in like the the sort of like PS one retro feel, uh, Anodyne two. Um, well, I also, either of those, and I heard they were great, both of them. I yeah, they're not super connected from what I'm to understand. I never played Anodyne one. Um, I mean, they they are connected in some ways, but Anodyne one was like more like a top down pixel art retro game made by the same people, and and you know they were really smart to interview and just like the games are brilliant. Um, I, I would 100% recommend that people play Anodyne too, though. It is like, it is, and, and, and Anodyne one's usually very cheap as well on itch. So, you know, buy that too. But the, um, Anodyne two is, is phenomenal. And like, it is, it has that kind of like weird, uh, grainy, uh, pixel, uh, not pixel, but a uh, polygon, uh, quality where like, yeah, I've seen pictures, but it's like early PS1 polygons where it's yes. like like it it's very difficult to make out. They feel like they're artifacting even when they're at their best, basically. And like the but like one of the things that is really great about Anodyne 2 is that the way it tells its story, I don't think there's a way to tell the story without that visual language. Like I think if the story was told in like a more uh, like higher fidelity or something like that, it would not make sense as a story. Whereas like the, you know, the, the, the action of like going into people's minds and, and clearing the dust from them and like, you know, that, that being your, your job, um, it just makes much more sense in this like gritty, not like uh, edgelord gritty, but like actually gritty like, and like in the way it looks as yeah. Like yeah. it seems like there's grit in it. Um, yeah, like it just it's it's a visual language that actually corresponds to what the game's trying to do. So, so that is mainly what I've always wanted with video games, but it seems sort of like an evolutionary arm 
of that has kind of disappeared as things mm. go towards the like sort of maximalist triple A games look like real life uh, movies, and that and that also makes their subject matter sort of like big budget stupid movies. But uh, I don't know. I, I think a good example, like probably an example that more people have played than the weird shit. How, da- thing. how dare you? <laughs> just saying, like if you think about, I'm just kidding. Yeah, no, go ahead. Think about the way Tacoma works or the way gone okay. works yeah both of those have to be interactive to tell their story and the fact that they are interactive means your interaction with them puts you even if in gone home it's pretty linear the fact that you're actively in it and the fact that in both of those in in gone home it's just a voice and in tacoma did you play either of these i did i i, I played and wrote about gone home i did never i never got to play tacoma um i i it's on my list so them so i hate to say this but i didn't like tacoma as much as gone home but i okay. the way tacoma looks because presentationally you are seeing representations of the people talking but the representations are very flat just showing them as shapes in space oh interesting which in both ways is alienating, but also through repetition, you get to know them. And then you get to know the character and associate a voice with a sort of just color and a shape, which is amazing. That's very cool. And, and I think I just like the story in gone home better than I like the story in Tacoma, but, uh, I mean, they're story heavy games that totally make sense. So, so those, there was a lot of criticism of them when they came out from just usual shitheads. But the immediate backlash to backlash against people saying that Gone Home was good. So, right. You know, the fucking thought ecosystem on the Internet is garbage based on strife. But like <laughs> last I've seen, I've seen people just being like, eh, Gone Home's not that good. Eh, walk, walk in simulators. So they've it's kind of come around to that I've seen from people recently. But what I liked about that so much so is – What's necessary for you to know the character in Gone Home and the characters is both the things that you're finding and seeing and putting together, but also the voice of somebody writing in their journal. Mm -hmm. I usually hate voiceovers in video games, mainly because, you know, they're uh, and they're like a way of telling story that's kind of like it's cheating. It's cheating. And also half the time it doesn't let you come to it on its own terms and also a third thing is that you know a lot of voiceovers are either like uh sort of i don't know everyone says the voiceovers in mass effect are good but they kind of make me want to kill myself Mm, i don't think they're great oh i remember hearing people saying like oh yeah female shepherd is sort of like the pinnacle of and i was just like it just sounds like an action movie i don't know yeah no i i think it's fine as an action movie i would not say it really uh well, it so doesn't stand out to me. The voice, so voiceovers are either that or they just sound like fucking Ninja Turtles or like anime dubs, you know? Like, yeah. They're sort of like, hey, gang, yeah. And like, kind of just like, just talk, come on. And given the choice, I'd prefer to read, but, uh, <laughs> so. Well, no, you, you're not allowed. Um, but so, so I'm saying, in Gone Home, the fact that the acting was so good, the voice was a singular voice of a journal, but also you're putting together through your interaction and basically sleuthing all the other members of the family who don't have a voice seemed like it became a very necessary thing. And that felt very futuristic to me, sort of as like 
futuristic. That that seemed like a direction that I expected games to go, kind of a, mm-hmm. of a new language. And the fact that it kind of hasn't is a is a bummer. But but to just go a larger point, I was just thinking the idea of games as games using game ishness as the goal instead of applying you know the sort of aesthetics of a movie or anything else is a thing that I still would like games to do except now they're billion dollar industries so yeah only the indie space can do that yeah i mean i wonder like i wonder some of the success of of games that have done uh interesting uh aesthetic i don't know interesting aesthetic things that are different um vis-a-vis like uh their 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 art and their representation like i wonder like games like kentucky route zero that have had like a measurable um a measurable effect in in like culture even if i don't, I don't know how well it sold i'm not sure like it was oh, a I financial success hope, i would hope that it was a success and i would hope that it inspires a lot of people because the sort of uh design ethos of that was definitely doing some very new things that, uh, the fact that there are choices in that that are only choices that are player expression yeah yeah yeah, yeah definitely is such a beautiful touch and also makes it really interesting to play it more than multiple times. Like, yeah. And little, little things like, uh, like I, I saw that there was, I mean, I hate achievements, but this, this clued me in on something. So I was happy to see it. Um, like there's an achievement for getting the, uh, there's a, the, a later scene in one of the, I think it's in chapter four where you, um, it's not a spoiler if you haven't finished it. I've, I've but, finished it, yes. Oh, okay, good. But, well, for anyone in the audience who hasn't, then it's not a spoiler. But uh, uh, you, you are trying to get a uh, a toy out of a claw machine for um, for one of the characters. And, like, you just basically get to make choices as to, like, your strategy within the claw machine. Yeah. And it just, like, usually doesn't work. And there's actually an achievement for getting the thing because it's oh. so hard to do. But it made perfect sense the way it worked out not being able to get it that I yep. assumed you couldn't. Uh, same here. But, like, the the idea that everything is, like, is, is so well considered that any choice actually works because it's part of the story is just, like, I don't know. Like, it, it feels to me on some level that AAA games are, you know, you, you mentioned that they're billion-dollar industry, and that is 100% true. Um, but also they're a billion-dollar industry that that – makes um that makes these i don't know like i'm trying to figure out the way to say it like they're a billion dollar industry that um relies upon uh, a kind of storytelling that uh, what i want to say here is that like they can't be small enough to to actually do something as contained as something like kentucky route zero absolutely i i I feel like I'd have talked about this last time I was on, but there there are so many games where I'm like, if that game was three hours long, it would be a masterpiece, but it can't be, so it has to be twelve. You know what I mean? Like, uh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I, it's like the Last Guardian was a game that I was, you know, that's a storied game that went through development hell. That's the third thing from the the eco people who did right. Yes, yes. Clauses. That game, if that game was literally two to three hours long, would be great. But they had to make a twelve-hour game. <laughs> so, yes, I, and like I've thought about this about a lot of games, like especially games that like end at three hours, and I'm so happy. The, there's a game I played recently that's called um, Smile for Me, which if you haven't played, you should. Um, Never even heard of it. 
I hadn't heard of it either, and Liv and I covered it for one of the like, the indie podcasts. Um, but uh, he, um, like the 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 people who made it, I think it's like two people, and it it's fascinating. Like you, you'd find the the um, you'd find the actual like creation of it interesting too, because the the people who made it never met each other. They they just like I mean maybe they've met each other once or twice, but like they mostly made the game just over chat kind of like they just never met each other and just kind of like produced it far away from each other, which is fascinating to me. Um, But the game itself is only like four hours long and I can see where that would like really frustrate people. It is like, it is a perfect little two a four hour game though. It is just like, it gets exactly what it needs to be um, so well that like, I don't know, like it, it inspires me to think about games that it inspires me to think about games that could actually do that right where like that could actually like limit themselves and um succeed in doing that and could only do so outside of the marketplace i guess that's the thing i'm trying to say well the games that have to exist as like indies effectively that's so weird though that there's an orthodoxy that you know it's it's true of nerd culture in general that orthodoxy becomes the basis of everything and orthodoxies are quickly things becoming orthodoxy can happen one thing does one thing and then all of a sudden all things have to do that yeah dark souls is a perfect example of this but so what the initial thing i was thinking about with the abstraction is like one thing that i really loved about dark souls and bloodborne and it was kind of missing in Sekiro, but uh the fact that that abstraction felt like an old Nintendo game where you basically turned it on and you're just like, I don't know what the fuck is going on here. And you had to put everything together by a clues. And most of the time the clues weren't there either because they weren't part of the game by design or because translation left you with no idea what the fuck was going on. That you basically put together a story and a world in your mind via playing a game, you know? And the fact that the dark souls and bloodborne series definitely keep that energy to like, the story in it is a kind of to whom it may concern that you put together through talking to weirdos who give you strange, archaic things to say and read descriptions of things. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, 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 you're absolutely right. Like it, That seems to me to have that feeling of true discovery that you might have, you know, picking, picking up a novel by someone you don't know super well that might not it might not have characters that are based on stereotypes or easy characterizations that you already know. So much of what you actually have to do and how it engages you in an aesthetic experience is um, you doing that work to figure it out. And so much of it is self-expression of trying to figure out those differences. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it's what's funny about what's, what's fascinating to me about um, uh, Dark Souls and, and what you're saying there is like, there's a story about, uh, uh, um, not Murakami. Um, oh, oh, I don't remember his name. Oh, oh gosh, it's it's. The, here's how I remember it. It's the same as the the name of the guy who did. Uh, and of course, now I'm forgetting the name. I'm gonna. This is even. Oh, it's Miyazaki. This- Miyazaki. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the same. The same as Studio Ghibli. Yeah. Um, but the um, the the way that um, I've heard 
the way that he was inspired to to like do the game uh and like particularly in the way he did was he had read uh fairy tales in translation without really knowing english so he had to put together like all of the parts uh and, and kind of just like guess right um, and so that was a big part of what was going on in that story, which like just always totally made sense to me. I really hope it's true because like, it just sounded so right. I was like, yeah, no, exactly. That's totally it. That's also semi true for anybody's, even in your you know mother tongue. The first time you, s- the first time you read a thing or see a thing, you might bring your own misreadings to it, which will yep. uh, totally define your experience with it, and then like. If you go on to make something, a thing you make might have more to do with your initial, just totally subjective misreading of a thing. Like, there's a band called Los Psychos, if you know who they are. I don't know them, no. Garage band from Peru from, like, the early 60s. They made this music that's so fucking insane that when people found it, they're like, this is, like, the first punk rock that was ever made. Like, it's raw and weird and screamy and stuff. Mm-hmm. I found all the guys who used to be in the band and interviewed them. They're like, were you guys trying to make like loud, crazy punk music? They're like, no, nah, we we're just trying to make music sound like the Beatles, but we weren't very good. So it's a little bad. <laughs> That's know? incredible. Like, <laughs> what, a, what a great response. But I also feel like the fucking Ramones made punk music by trying to, you know, sound like, uh, trying to sound like, like doo-wop or something. Like, yeah, no, exactly. Like it's, it's just like, yeah, no, no, you're totally right. Yeah, I don't know. Like weird when you read writers you like and they talk about how much they I can't even think of who it was. I was reading some writer and they were like, "Yeah, what I'm trying to do is write like Lord Byron." I was like, "Why? You're, are you oh, you're tra- it was, Are you serious? That's It was Mikhail Lermontov is who Oh, okay. Was, that which makes sense at the time, but I was like, "Oh, weird." <laughs> you know what I mean? So like That's really weird. I feel like so many Artists, myself included, everybody probably is like, oh, I'm going to try this thing. And then the trying of the thing ends up like you end up making your own wild, totally crazy, whatever the fuck. So, yeah. So, yeah, the the abstraction thing, like where that's been inspiring to me is I make comics for the most part. The comic I'm working on now, this isn't true, but I make comics that are usually wordless, like they have no words in them. So it depends on the reader to kind of put together what's being said and what's being done. And this new comic you're working on is uh, is the new Justice League. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, so it's just like so it's just like I would hope readers. It's asking readers to engage in a way that they you know might feel hard because it's slightly less passive, but. Mm-hmm. When people get it, they get it. But I'm trying to do that same feeling I had when I was a kid playing like a Nintendo game like Rygar or something where it just starts and you're like, I don't know what the fuck any of this is. And, I love those games. And then the the few things you see that are like have language in them, you're like, that literally means nothing to me. Like, I don't know. You know what I mean? But it, yeah, no, exactly. It starts putting together a kind of feeling. It. If anything has meaning, it's because you've assigned it as as the reader. So you can, you know, I think art has to have an open space for people to get inside of it. And that space has to be a part for them to put their personal subjective feelings into, which, you know, is easy to say. And also that leads to, you know, some people might care about things and some people might not. But yeah, that's totally at odds with how we talk about art. 
for the most part on social media where everything is just kind of like joining a fucking team and fighting people because I, because you can't have more than one reading of a thing <laughs> yeah no you're absolutely right like and i think like you know one of the things about art that people really like like i this is this is sort of my beef with um with uh 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 death stranding which like <laughs> truly like my take on death stranding got me um so more more trouble in the editing process i'll say and actually that's nothing against egm egm is, is actually like very very good editors um but more like just like in in thinking about it and stuff like i got pushback from people and like part of the pushback was i was like there's some cool stuff in this game like the mechanics are fun um I don't think the story is very good. I like just kind of ordinary. Like, see, that's the funniest thing about Kojima. Like, he is given tons of credit. I think because he's a celebrity now. Like, oh yeah, for sure. Both the fact, both his his profound stuff and his totally fucking stupid stuff are given the same genius level credit. Where saying <laughs> genius basically makes you not think about it anymore. Oh right, yeah, no, no, no. That's totally right. Yes, I've been a fan of his stuff my whole life, but. I got to say, if Death Stranding was literally about what you were doing and the actions you did in that game told the story more than my mom was the president and (laughs) Princess Beach and all that horseshit, like that game would be a masterpiece if it was literally about walking, if it was literally about weird delivery. Yes. No, 100 percent. Like the actual story in that game does not need to be there. It's just like it's just funny because ultimately what I felt about Death Stranding is kind of what I ended up feeling about. I haven't played, or in, I ha- haven't really played a, a Grand Theft Auto game in a long time, but I really liked San Andreas. Mm-hmm. But I also didn't give a shit about the story after a while, and I yeah. like the story of what you're doing in that game is so much more like launching a motorcycle off a, a truck is more interesting than <laughs> it's just some made up bad Hollywood gang shit, you know? Well, and I mean, like, the 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 nice thing about it, too, is, like, the nice thing about it, too, is, like, the, the, the game itself is, especially when you're playing a game like that, like San Andreas, um, it's, it's a little like playing, like, Morrowind as opposed to something like uh, Skyrim, where, like, the game is not, or, or, I mean, honestly, something like Metal Gear instead of... Um, uh, or Metal Gear is probably not the right example. Kojima is a tough one, but like the, I, I think the, Metal Gear three instead of Death Stranding is a good because Metal Gear definitely has like this. You got to do this. You got to do this. But you definitely have free form to do whatever the fuck you want. But, right, and like the the, I think like there's a bunch of games that are older that people have very fond memories of, and then their predis- and then their successors that are just like not as well loved. And part of what I think is wrong with video games at this point, and that's a big thing to say, but uh, you know, take it with the appropriate grain of salt is that people don't recognize that what they don't like about the newer games is that they don't give, they're, they're too overdetermined. Like they're, they're just like, Ooh, yeah, yeah. Like Skyrim is, is like capital S Skyrim. Like this is the world of Skyrim. And like, whereas Morrowind's like, yeah, there's going to be some stuff I'm not going to explain to you. Like there's going to be some weirdo creatures and stuff. Like who knows what they're going to be. <laughs> Skyrim is like, you are, you know, some kind of messianic figure who the world revolves around. And Morrowind is like, you can make a spell that makes you jump in the air, but you have to figure out how to land. Yeah, right. <laughs> the difference right. between those two, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, like, I, I feel like that is – that's something that bothered me about Death Stranding, too, is that, like, it felt 
here's a here's a, a a kind of like pretentious way of saying it, uh, or not pretentious, but a way that'll make people mad at me. Um, it's uh, one and the same, really. Yeah. Uh, Death Stranding to me felt a lot like um, Inception did. Like, yeah. It, well, I I thought I honestly, and I'll still give it credit. I think Inception is well plotted insofar as it lets you in on a very complex idea and doesn't make you think too hard about it. Like it's like okay, here's here's what the plot of the movie is. We're going into people's dreams, and it can go like seven layers deep or whatever. And you're just like, okay, I'm on board, great. But like the idea of it being anything other than an action movie, right? The idea of it being anything other than like sort of like popcorn fare. People are just like, this is super deep for a while until they were just like, actually, it's not. That's, I remember seeing Inception and being like, ah, that's pretty good. I don't know why the deepest level of dreams looks like shooting scene from Goldeneye because it's. A- oh yeah, no, no, it does. I mean, I I remember thinking that too. Like, oh, this looks like this looks this looks like a fun video game. But also, just like when dreams can be literally anything. I also had the same problem when I was a kid with the Matrix. They're like, you can do anything in your dreams. Like, have an infinite amount of guns. It was like. <laughs> Couldn't you just like make somebody turn into a walrus or something? Like, what the fuck do you need a gun for at that point? <laughs> like, <laughs> immediately after I saw Inception, I remember I was listening to NPR and there was literally a story like, doesn't seem like it's doing this good, doing that well at the box office. And that really makes Hollywood worry. Is it too smart? Is this? And I was like, that movie, oh man, <laughs> if that movie's too smart. I don't know what the fuck. Like, <laughs> I don't think it's too smart. <laughs> but yeah, that's so the thing about, um, the thing about Death Stranding is also like I guess it's cool for a tweet and shit that Kojima's got celeb friends that he hangs out with. But <laughs> first of all, going forward, twenty twenty, fuck celebrities. I thought we were all on the same page for a minute when they got mad at everyone singing Imagine. But yeah, for a second there, Gal Gadot got everyone on the same page. Let's keep that energy going forward. Fuck celebrities. But um, just the sort of thing about like he wanted to make a movie. And yeah, that movie's fine, but that movie's also convoluted horseshit and goes on for twenty hours. So it's the same problem with Metal Gear Four. Like, right, right. A, a movie that is just a million Wikipedia pages and people just saying it in gruff voices, like, isn't a good movie. <laughs> the, yeah, no, that's exactly right. And like the, the tragic, the tragic thing about Death Stranding is the moment-to-moment gameplay is so weird, so thought of, and I like it. Oh, that it's if if the game let the story be told by literally the things you were doing and not being like, and here's your sister and here she's a ghost. And here's this guy and Mads Mikkelsen 20 years ago, blah, blah, blah. And you're just like, that's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like if you were kind of like, if you were like, I don't know, like on a rowing machine. And every time you rode, they told you like a complicated story about 60 celebrities. It's like, okay. Like, <laughs> here, I'm here to row, you know, like it's just it's just it's just like the the pair. It's like those those ridiculous ROM hacks like Pokemon Black or something like that, where it's like we're going to make Pokemon this time. It's going to be serious. Like <laughs> this time your Pokemon can die. Like, Isn't that, is that what Sonic the Hedgehog became? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, definitely Sonic 05 is that I've heard some bizarre uh, summaries of that. Um, but yeah, no, like I, I think like, I think you're absolutely right. Like it is, there's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's old hat in some ways or, or, or seen as cringy or whatever uh, and earnest to talk about like imagination and the game space or whatever. And I, I get it. Like there were a lot of scholars and I'm, I'm 100% happy to yell at these scholars. Um, Cause I don't like their work, but the, you know, like, <laughs> like you know, there's, there's a bunch of scholars who like, who, 
came out and were just like the imagination and the word play and the the idea of play in the game space itself is going to change language. It, it didn't. Like, of course, it didn't. But like the yeah, I, the, I mean, I think it probably did, and not in the way they thought. Not I guess. the way that they thought, and not in the way that could be discreetly charted in the way that they were saying it would be. Right? I've, yeah. If it, honestly, if someone said that, like literally, what you just said, like it eh, changed, but not in the way I can discreetly chart. You'd be like, "Yep, I'm in, I'm on board. Yeah, you're you're right." Um, but like the, like the idea that it's just like, you know, this is going to open up so many possibilities with a capital P and it's just like all always leads to like the, the academic messianism of, of the next thing coming. Um, <laughs> I was just thinking about the immediate thing my mind went to is like, games are going to change everything. It's like, okay, we live under a horrible capitalist system. We'll see the gamification of labor in a way that nobody will benefit from. <laughs> did, did games do this? <laughs> it's just like that. Uh, that that. Um, oh, the Eric Andre. Show. Yeah, the Eric Andre meme. <laughs> who, who, who did this? And it's just did, games. Do this. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, like the the um, yeah, like the. I think like one of the things about about like the idea of imagination in gaming that is not has not been plumbed enough is that you know, being able to be imaginative as opposed to being told exactly what you're doing at every single second and exactly what it means in, you know, very careful ways. Even even shown things that have to be a million different. Like, I remember this sort of immediate, like, emotional, emotional Uncanny Valley of, I didn't even play the full thing. A friend of mine had it. When I was living in Japan and, and Final Fantasy thirteen came out, mm-hmm. I remember watching my friend played watching him for like literally like six hours (laughs) because, you know, it was a final fantasy and I usually played all of them when they came out and literally me and him being like, well, they spent a lot of money on this and every surface is shiny and everything has a million moving parts, but also like, it seems like it just looks like looking into a gigantic complicated Fabergé egg. <laughs> oh, it's funny because, like, I was actually – it's funny that you say that because I was actually thinking when we were talking before about bringing up um, Final Fantasy fourteen, which is, like, actually a game that I, I, I very much like. Um, Wait, is that the online one or the it's, – it's the It's the, it's the, uh, the MMO. Um, I, no, I never played it, yeah. I didn't, I didn't think I'd like an MMO, and this game has totally, totally uh, hooked me in, in a terrible, terrible way. Um, but it's not, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's fairly uh, calm if you, you know, are an adult. You can't, like, you can't actually spend the time that you would have spent in college playing it, right? Um, <laughs> like, it would have, if I had gotten into a game like this in college, I just would have never graduated. Uh, so it's good that I'm past that point. But... The I think like the one thing that um, is really cool about Final Fantasy fourteen is so it's raids right where like twenty you have to you get in like a twenty four person party and they're just like the big event kind of things that they take out the same big boss or something yeah there's like a dungeon and then a couple of big bosses basically um, and the the cool thing about that is they they pull from old Final Fantasy games and like um, kind of bring the bring the story into uh, Final Fantasy XIV. So, like, everything sort of shares a, um, a continuity in, in not an annoying way. It's not, like, a way where they're like, did you remember this from this game? Like, it turns out this this person was their father. Like, it yeah. it just kind of plays with it. It's, it's very freeform. It's like uh, a really good friend of mine, a friend of mine from my old comics group in Japan, she she now does semi-official illustration for for Final Fantasy XIV. Oh, I basically... I'll, so jealous of her. She she 
draws just beautiful pictures of red mages and stuff. So. If you if you get a chance, tell her how much I admire her work. But um, I did all the art in that game is all the art about that game is just gorgeous. So so um, I like it because it does have all those references to like black mages from Final Fantasy One and shit in it. Yeah, yeah, that's. Well, and like the cool thing about it is like so the first the first like big raid is this is this um, basically this tower where you go in and I think they're the bosses from the Japanese Final Fantasy three. Um, so a game that like no one in the West really played. Uh, so the bosses don't mean a lot to you, but you can tell by the way that they are depicted in the game that they were originally sprites. Right. Like, the oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The way that they render them is like. It like it has that extremely sort of like um like Kefka had this too in Final Fantasy VI if you remember where it's like uh it's almost like uh Joseph's technical or dream code or whatever where it's like it's like the there's like reds and golds and uh, greens and stuff like that and what I love about it in Final Fantasy XIV is instead of like sanding that down so you're like oh well here's how to make it make sense to the gamers of today. They just like faithfully recreate it. Like you could look at the old the old sprites, which I have after I played the 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 raid. Well, I don't want to break off a can of worms here because we've been talking for a long time. Please, I'm playing, I'm playing Persona Five. Uh huh. I have played basically all the Shin Megami Tensei games. Very good of you to play all the Shin Megami Tensei games. I can't tell you how how much I support that goal. And the fact that you see in loving 3D sprites that were insane, weird. Ugh. But he thought of once 30 years ago things that are now in 3D in front of you with the same amount of care is so hilarious. I guess Dragon Quest Eleven probably had that. Yeah. It's kind of like, they're like, yeah, I know that this was a sprite just based on how this person is standing, but they put it into 3D. No, you're totally right. Like, it's 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 the same. It, it's funny the opposite way, too, because I played Shin Megami Tensei 3. I played Nocturne first. And then I went back, I played about like, I don't know, 20, I need to start it up again, but I, I played like 20% of the first Shin Megami Tensei. Um, There's, well, and it, I, but looking at like Jack Frost in the past <laughs> is just as weird as seeing Jack Frost evolve. It's like, oh, wow. Okay. That's like funny. Cause those games have such a place in my heart that it was also deeply connected to when I was starting to learn Japanese. So they were a learning tool, mm. Japanese I didn't even need and couldn't use, but like, <laughs> It was just so funny that those games have such a place in my heart that I always want to recommend them to people. And I'm always like, no, there's no reason to play the first three of those games. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. There's definitely a reason to play Nocturne. That game's great. Oh, no, Nocturne is great, but I'm okay. Like the f- oh, like I mean, Shin- games are like one, two and three. Oh, you mean one, two and if? Yes. Yeah. OK, OK, because like, technically Nocturne is three. You know, not to be not to be pedantic. Uh, okay, well, I, I just think of the, uh, the the sort of eight and 16 bit ones. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's no reason to play Shin Megami's Tensei one, two and if. Absolutely not. No, no. They're actively hostile just by design to playing them in the same way that like I would tell people like, yo, you got to play Fantasy Star 2, but also you shouldn't ever. Like, <laughs> Don't do it. Yeah, I actually I had that happen to me with Fantasy Star where I like. I picked up four because everyone was telling me it was so good. Like it was like towards the tail end of Sega. So like I was old enough where it was like maybe maybe I might have even been playing it on a different platform. I don't know. But I just could not get into it at all. I was like, this makes no sense to me. I I played that game probably when I was 22. Okay. With my friend, my roommate at the time who Mm -hmm. played it a million times. I literally was just like basically watching an expert speed run of it. 
as long as to see all the good stuff without having to. That's great. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate. It. I I feel like there are games like that for everyone, but like again, like to go back to like abstraction, like they they exist like that because not because they're like some sort of like extraordinarily like well crafted perfect uh, depiction of of a mimetic a mimetically perfect moment from the world, but because like they hit something in your mind and you were able to to tap into it and it meant something to you because it was sort of like i don't know syncretically creating something with you well well so it's like i feel like that's an important thing about like all art and i mean the 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 people who got hit by homestuck the hardest who are not us probably because of age are like that's something you can't take away from somebody but that's also something you can't replicate in other people right right so like I don't know. So the abstraction thing, like, I want to replicate that feeling in people of giving them a space that is definitely, it. it's abstract, but I've put in enough there that I have a message and a way that I want to guide the reader, but gives enough space for them to enter it and take things how they want. Mm. So, you know, like, I've had the conversation with people where they're like, well, you're not really meeting anybody halfway. And it's like, I mean... <laughs> I am meeting them halfway. I'm just not meeting them all the way. Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. Like, I I think that's totally right. Like the idea of meeting someone halfway is, is not really what people mean when they say that they mean like, (laughs) why aren't you spelling this out? Why aren't you, you know, like like, there's something that, and it's, it's actually something I really like like, that my, um, so uh, I was saying, uh, I forget if we were on air or not, but I was saying to you earlier that like, I've had to uh, be homeschooling uh, my daughter a little bit because uh, she's in kindergarten. Uh, so it's not like hard. I can, I can still do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, it hasn't, it hasn't, it's not fourth grade. So I'm, I'm smart enough to do it yet. <laughs> That's the limit I would assume. Um, but uh, like one of the books they're reading for, um, for like library, basically they have a library special class where they get to go to the library once a week. And so the library teacher has been putting them, putting together some stuff for them. It's, it's nice. It's, it's like good literacy stuff. And like the, the one thing they did, they read this book called like Sam and Dan, I think, or something like that. And it was like, it's a very strange book. It's about these two guys who like go digging for a treasure. They just decide to go digging. And uh, they're like, well, we got to go dig for something special. And they keep digging and they, they almost hit a diamond. They're like, ah, this is no good. Let's dig, let's dig sideways instead. And, and so like, you know, it's in some ways it's like a very kid book that way. But the ending, they fall asleep in the hole, and uh, their dog uh, finds a bone beneath them and digs down, and the ground opens up. They all start falling, and then they land back at their house, and they get to go inside for chocolate milk. And it's completely, like, <laughs> opaque what happened. Like, like I, I looked at it a couple of times with my daughter, and I was like, I don't know. I don't know what happened. What do you, what do you think happened? Like, let's do a YouTube series like Fan Theory. Sam and Dan are dead. Yeah. yeah. Although we we will get rich. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But the but no, like it was cool. <laughs> it was cool because like it, it it was giving them a question that and like the 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 question the 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 librarian was like it was like okay so like what do you wonder about this book like what's one of like what's one of the questions you have what's one of the things like you were wondering as you were reading it and like it's cool to be given a book like that that doesn't actually answer it where it's like, I was wondering what happened to Sam and Dan and uh, there's no answer. Like, I don't, did they go to hell? Are they, 
dreaming the whole thing? Was it in their mind? Was it, are they dead? Like that's all of that's on the table. And like, that's that's cool. That's, but that's an interesting thing about, I don't know. I, I mean, the immediate stupid thing I went to is like in, especially nerdy things like video games or, or like movies or comic books, lots of times no mystery is ever allowed. Right. Right. No. Yeah, of course not. Cause it would, it violates canon. It, like, you have to know. And it's just funny that like Boba Fett is popular because he was a mysterious character of which nothing was said in the star Wars movies. <laughs> and that just led to a bunch of just total dog shit. Like he's this tall and he went to college here and you know, like, <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's like, no, it's a cool looking dude who didn't say anything. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, he just, he, he was really cool and like seemed to be a good bounty hunter. And then he died. Yeah. <laughs> or did he? No, he did. Um, but yeah, no, it's like, it, it is, it's true. Like the, the idea of finding out more about someone or the, the, the hope to, I guess that's the way I, I would put it to sort of like, because uh, we probably, we should probably wrap up because we're going on two hours. Um, but I think the way I would put it, like the, the sort of like final thought I have on it is like the, you know, like the worst thing you can do to something you love or, or enjoy is try and come up with some way that it represents totality. Like to take Boba Fett and instead of thinking about it, like, wow, what about Boba Fett? Like really like is cool to me. Think about like, okay, I need to read every single thing about Boba Fett. I need to get all the details on him. I need to find out like what his weaknesses are. Like like <laughs> it's power rankings. Yeah, right. It's like it's like coming across, I don't know, like a weird character in a comic book, right? Like um like the spot or something like that in an old Spider Man comic book. And you're like, Whoa, that villain's so weird. Like, what a cool idea to be able to like make a spot and trans like transmit yourself through that spot. Or like those old like joke guys, like uh like bat rock the leaper or whatever where it's like <laughs> yeah where it's like oh cool like, like this guy sucks uh, like he's he's i don't understand why they included him but like, like it's pretty cool he's a he's a canonical villain and then it's like, like what you're hoping then the the wrong direction would be to hope like well i hope they bring him back and, and give him like a backstory and he's really cool and he's like part of the sinister six that's new or whatever and then like, like it sucks the better thing to do would be to say like, like okay, like what about this actually like wh- why am I drawn to this? Like this is like what do I find interesting about this? And then like then you come up with some good answers. Yeah. There's a there's a book by Azuma, I don't remember his first name. It's kind of like the first sort of like uh theoretical work on otaku culture or whatever, but mm-hmm. you don't even need to be interested in that to read it. In which he talks about fandom being uh he could, you know, he's like a Alexandra Kojev scholar, so he uses pretty crazy language. Nice. <laughs> talks about uh, he talks about otaku being database animals. Okay. That the things they like, they base they break down into data sets and store those sets in a d- database, and that's more important than a work. So, like mm. guys who like figurines of girls with long hair and glasses have like girl figurine long hair glasses broken down into a data set that they can store (laughs) you know that's a good i guess uh take on otaku culture but i I feel like we are trained to do that as as consumers of media in in general yeah as we talk about it and as we consume it but uh i yeah i don't want to keep you forever so my final thought (laughs) 
we can we can always you're always welcome back. We can do this again next week. We can make it we can make it a quarantine tradition. Okay, you. I want you to describe to me how Geist works in uh in in Hegel. <laughs> is is uh, how dare you uh, bring up my one my one big failure? <laughs> in conversation once when I was in a bar drunk and I private messaged you on Twitter at like two a.m. on a Saturday like. How does Geist work anyway, man? Uh, the next morning, I was like, "Yeah, you don't have to answer that uh, on a Saturday." Geist, yeah, I mean, uh, oh, okay, I don't have to answer it now. Okay, no. we'll we'll do that next time you're on. I'll I'll, I'll tell you all about Hegel. So the the thing that I wanna that I wanna uh, kind of fits in, and I wanna plug because I guess it technically yeah. comes out in May. Is I have a book coming out that is all fake covers and back covers to a comic book series that doesn't exist. Oh, cool. <laughs> That's a great idea. Yeah. And I, in my usual fashion, I gave it a hard to pronounce and spell name. So it's called the Marchmore library. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, I'll, I'll tell you about it. <laughs> that comes out from secret acres, uh, in May in mid May. Nice. nice. Oh, and the other thing that's video game related, you know, Stephen Murphy, the Catamites. Yes, yes, yes. No, he has a he has a his most recent game called Ten Beautiful Postcards. Yeah, is out, and I have artwork in that. And also, he released a sort of essay series post mortem that you can buy with it right now for cheap. Oh, I should see if he'd like to ever come on the show. I like, I like, I like his work a lot. He's a very shy guy. He's he's. Oh, then I won't bother him. I don't want to. No, I don't. I don't know. I don't want to speak for him. Uh, no, no. I just. I. I know. I know. It's. It's tough being shy and then asked to do things like that. That's a. Uh, that can be hard. Great human being and smarter than both of us. I think. Oh yeah, no. His work's fantastic. I. I love it. Anyway, in his most recent thing, I made a series of portraits that take pl- that are in the game itself. But if you get the essay series, you can see all the portraits in order. Oh, cool. With. Uh, with their titles. So that's another way you can see my work. And, and where can, like, what's your, what's your Twitter handle? Where can people actually follow you to, to find all this great work? Oh, I'm at AD activity. That's AD Alex Deegan activity. Just one word. I always thought of it. I, I actually never put together that it's Alex Deegan activity. I always thought it was like advertising activity. <laughs> oh yeah. You're not the only one. People okay. said that a lot. Mm. Uh, but like, um, and the other thing, uh, so, uh, mind hunters. Oh yeah. So actually mind hunters, yeah. you can still get that. You can, you're allowed to buy it still. I, but I, I want everyone to buy it. That's, that's my really long, uh, sci-fi psychedelic wordless comic that came out 2018. And I was just, by the way, there's a character as a joke called Donald in that. And another character called Rupert, just background characters who are, Rupert Murdoch and Donald Trump, who I was pissed off at when I was drawing them <laughs> in 14, because that oh, no. kept showing up on Fox News and I had to hear about it. And I was like, why do we have to hear about this fucking idiot? And now, uh, now he's president. That's why we had to hear about him, so he could become president. <laughs> yeah. Our next president, the My Pillow guy. Oh, Christ. <laughs> yeah. I've spoken it into existence. That's what it's going to be. It's going to be something even stupider. It's going to straight up be like that Joey Salad guy who drank his own piss. And- oh, yeah. No, you're right. Although, is that stupider than the My Pillow guy? Sound off in the comments, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, well, th- Alex, thank you for coming on. Thanks for such a, a good, long-ranging discussion. This has been, uh, honestly, I, I will say in all honesty, it's been stimulating to have a good conversation. Um, yeah, next week, we're going to be talking about Geist. and yeah, I, I can't wait. I can't wait till we have a podcast every week. Until I'm doing 20,000 podcasts. <laughs> Jesus. As a, a million podcasts shall bloom. Um, to do, you have to do one with your daughter as part of the hopefully. <sighs> You know, the, the Dad and Dave podcast. <laughs> there are so many people who who just like, oh, that's a whole other topic. But there are a lot of people who just like treat their kids as content minds. And I'm so worried about becoming that. I'm just like, no, no, you guys live your own life. I don't want to, I'm not shelling you out. Like, I'm not going to explain to people why I like you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, man. Well, uh, come back again soon, perhaps next week. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Yep. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for listening to No Cartridge. If you'd like to support us further, please consider going to patreon.com slash no cartridge or for a one-time donation, paypal.me slash hegelbon, H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. It's really, really helpful for all of us to be able to support uh, the many people who make the show, uh, you know, myself included, but also our producers and various co-hosts um, and, and writers and artists. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to like, subscribe, share, any of those things that would let other people get the quality video game analysis that you've grown accustomed to.